Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Well, today we're releasing a bonus episode based on a conversation I recently had with Bart Campolo. Now, you might recognize the name Campolo. Bart has been an evangelist and a speaker and a worker in the inner city for decades. You also might recognize his father, Tony Campolo, a Christian evangelist and professor who's very well known for decades. Well, Bart recently came out and announced that he's now a psychohumanist. He's left his faith. And I actually remember as an undergrad at Biola in the mid to late 90s, hearing him speak. And he announced it recently. And he and I got invited onto a show called Unbelievable Radio, hosted by Justin Brierly, to kind of compare and contrast our stories and experiences, but really debate and discuss, does secular humanism or Christianity best explain reality and particular moral values? I'm confident you will enjoy this podcast. So take a listen, and if you do, consider sharing it with a friend. Firstly, Bart, as someone who hasn't featured on the program before, well, do you want to just briefly spell out what the journey was for you? Because I, I understand having had a sort of conversion in your youth, uh, gradually you came to doubt more and more aspects of Christian faith as you'd understood them. And until at some point you realized, I, I don't think I believed the whole story anymore. Sure. I mean, you know, like Sean, I grew up in Christendom. I grew up with my dad being Tony Campolo, the, the, the big evangelist. And the weird thing for me is, is that as I grew up, I loved my folks, but I didn't believe in God. I, you know, and it wasn't that I was rebellious or that I thought that everybody was a phony. It was just that the story, the st- all those stories didn't make sense to me. They didn't seem plausible to me. I didn't actually become a Christian until I was in high school. And I was led to Christ by a, a kid on my soccer team, my football team, um, who brought me along to this mega church youth group. And I walked into this room and there were like 300 kids and a rock and roll band and a laser light show. And, and there was all this energy. And, and when I walked into that room, I realized I was surrounded by 300 kids who really loved each other. And there was this quality of relationship there, this community there that really turned me on. Like I was a nice kid and this felt like a club for nice kids who wanted to make things better for other people. And so I was immediately attracted to it. And when I figured out that they were all evangelical Christians, of course, growing up in my family, I knew how to fake it. I knew, I knew the right things to say. I knew how to act. And so I went along with that youth group for months just because I wanted to be part of it. And at some point in that kind of, in that kind of moment, you know, cause I mean, I love the youth group. It gave me a sense of identity. It gave me a sense of purpose. It made me feel like part of a community. Um, and at one point we were up on a youth retreat and you guys have been on youth retreats. You know, there's, there's hundreds of kids there. It's Saturday night. There's, there's candlelight and firelight and everybody's singing. Our God is an awesome God and we love you, Lord. And in the midst of that kind of environment, I, I had what I guess you would call a transcendent moment. I, had, I, I, had, I, I felt something. It felt like there was something happening in that room that was bigger than the group. Like I felt like I was connected to, to something. And, and in that moment, of course, you know, that was God. And, 
And it's funny because, you know, I hang around with atheist people now or, or secular people of all different kinds. And some of them are so bitter and angry. And some of them will come to me and they'll say, I bet you feel like a real jerk for having pretended that you heard the voice of God or pretended that you felt the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, I would have a very different explanation for those experiences. But I felt something. I heard something. I, that was real to me. People that don't believe in transcendent experiences, I always think, like, you haven't been to the right concert. You know, like, <laughs> you haven't used the right drugs. You, you, haven't, you haven't fallen in love with the right partner. I mean, th these experiences are real. And I think whatever narrative you're in when you have one, it confirms that narrative. So, I mean, I think if I'd have had that same kind of transcendent moment with my friends in a mosque in Afghanistan, it would have confirmed Islam to me. Um, but I was in the Christian world. Sure. And, I, I, and so from that point on, Jesus was real to me. I mean, because of the, the we don't have a, a enough time, more time than than I'd like to have to, to kind of talk through your story. Um, if I could give a sort of potted history um, and maybe we'll explore it a bit more as, as we go through the program. Obviously, having had that, that experience that did, you know, that, that sort of set you on the Christian path, it, albeit obviously, um, I think one where you still in, immediately um, felt like uh, there, there were huge questions for your faith because you talk in the well, film, yeah, and, film I about... I mean, the rest of the story I can tell you in, in two sentences. Yeah, okay, go ahead. You know, <laughs> you know like, the rest of the story is the first thing anybody asked me to do for Jesus was to work in an inner city summer camp with really poor kids in a ghetto. And for the next 30 years, I was an inner city missionary. And over those 30 years, my commitment to loving relationships and to social justice and to community building grew and grew and grew. And my ability to believe in a supernatural God that actually does anything in the world died the death of a thousand cuts, you know, the death of a thousand unanswered prayers. I was in, a, I was in the midst of a really, really difficult world, mm -hmm. and we would call on God regularly to do stuff that any good and loving God should want to do. And uh, and he didn't show up very often. Let's talk to Sean before we start to examine more of your story. Bart, thank you for joining me on the program today. It's good of you to be here and uh, to, and to tell your own story. I'm sure you're telling it a lot at the moment, anyway. But Sean, um, coming coming to you, do you want to just um, remind us of your story for those who who haven't heard it? Because you also grew up in a sense with a, a well known Christian father in Christian ministry. Um, but when when did faith kind of get tested for you and what was your response along that journey? Yeah, I grew up in a Christian home in a small town in the mountains of San Diego. And honestly, as I look back, I don't even remember the first time I came to faith. People will tell their testimonies of these traumatic experiences. And I always remember thinking, gosh, I don't know. I just always believed it made sense to me. And in fact, looking back, I probably I, I wouldn't have expressed it this way, but I probably thought people weren't Christians because they just didn't read evidence that demands a verdict or more than a carpenter. I probably would have thought, gosh, how, you know, it's easy. Just read the book. And then really getting in into college about 1920, I think my sophomore year, I was, this is early mid nineties. I was fishing around on the internet and I don't think there was Google yet, but it's the first time you could find blogs and interact with people and I remember reading these extensive sites. In fact, I've learned since then that the secular web really began responding chapter by chapter to evidence that demands a verdict. They had doctors, lawyers, historians. I got in there and started reading this stuff and was really taken back. Like, wow, they're raising contradictions in the Bible. They're saying Jesus didn't even exist. They're saying science disproves faith. And 
my parents had raised me to ask questions, to seek after truth, and never had a sense of like bearing doubt or my questions. But this really hit me. I remember feeling like a tornado, like, oh, my goodness, my parents mean well. I've committed my life to this, but what if this is wrong? And it wasn't just an intellectual exercise. I remember kind of staying up late, just feeling it a little bit going, man, what if I, what if I give this up? And I don't think I ever gave it up, but I remember it was, again, around my sophomore year. We're in Breckenridge, Colorado, and a little ski town a couple, couple hours outside of Denver up in the mountains. And I told my dad, I said, Dad, can we go get, get some coffee? There's something I want to share with you. And he goes, sure. So we go to coffee, and I remember looking at him. I just said, Dad, I just I want you to know I'm not sure that I believe this Christian stuff. I got a lot of questions. And, you know, you, you talk about people being the glass half full, half empty. My dad's like the glass is 95% full. He's like the consummate optimist. He just looks at me and goes, son, I think that's great. And I paused. I'm like, did you hear anything I just said? Like, are you writing a talk in your head or something? And he goes, no, I think it's great. You can't live on my convictions. You have to decide if you think this is true. Follow the evidence wherever it leads. And I remember he said to me, he goes, I really think if you do follow the evidence, you'll be led to Jesus because Jesus is the truth. And he said, don't reject the things you've learned growing up just to rebel or just to reject. Only walk away from something if you think it's not true. And then he said something effective, you know, your mom and I will love you no matter what. And, you know, in the big picture of my life, I don't want to over-dramatize this, but it was definitely a turning point in my life where I guess I started to read other religious texts, read a number of atheist books, just trying to ask myself, why do I believe? Does this make sense? Is it reasonable to explain the world? And can I bank my life on this? And there wasn't one just defining moment where it was like, all right, I got this. It was just through time, through conversations, through reading, that I really began to think that Christianity was true and uh, worthy of following. So that's kind of the quick snippet of it, I guess. And, and in a way, I, I guess the, the kind of conversation that Sean had with his father, Bart, um, is one where, where you would say good advice uh, on the part of Josh don't do it because you're rebelling don't don't do it without thinking it through but if it isn't true i don't want you to believe it in a sense and 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 i guess that's that's good advice wherever you stand on this part you know it's funny i know this will sound really funny but i'm not sure that i would tell somebody you know like 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 for me what i'm most concerned about with other people is what works what causes them to thrive? What causes them to flourish? Um, and, and so sometimes I meet Christian young people. I work on a college campus with, with college students, and sometimes a Christian kid will come to talk to me about their faith, and they'll, they, they'll, I'll say, well, you know, they'll say, I'm struggling with Christianity. I'll say, well, what are you struggling with? And, and they'll tell me, it, and, and it'll be some kind of minor thing that, like, a guy like Sean could put straight in three seconds. And... Uh, and I'll say, hey, have you looked at this Bible verse? Have, you know, have, have you looked at that? Like, that—that's not a problem. There's a way. There's a way around that. Or, or, and I'll try to sort of give them an apologetic argument. And sometimes they'll look at me and say, well, why are you trying to help me stay a Christian? You don't even think it's true. And I said, no, but you do, and your family does, and your girlfriend does, and it works for you, and it's causing you to become a better person. So for me, like, I'm not as interested in just under like i'm not at all interested in undermining anybody's faith just for the fun of it or just because i don't think that it's true 
the only people that I want to sort of draw into my humanist world or my humanist community are people who are struggling. So I'm sitting in my office doing this recording right now, and it was here that I got a text from a mutual friend of ours, Bart, and he said, hey, did you see Bart became a humanist? And I'll be honest, it's like I froze and I got a tear in my eye. (laughs) I really did. And that's because Bart's had a huge influence on my life. And I've told you this before, Bart. I spent a year working in the inner city because of your encouragement. I remember when you came and spoke in chapel my junior year and we went out for a meal. You sent me your book. Uh, Just the idea of somebody a decade plus, I'll be generous, who (laughs) (laughs) who was going through a similar, just had a similar father, similar processes in life that I did. You helped me process a lot of those kind of questions and issues that would arise having kind of a rock star evangelical father. So we stayed in touch through those couple decades. And then when I saw this film in particular, that scene was powerful. I saw it through your eyes, Bart. I imagined myself going, what if I really sat down with my parents and I told them I don't believe anymore. We've written books together. We've spoken together. I paused and just thought, man, that would be one of the hardest conversations I could ever have. And now that I'm a father and I have three kids, I also saw it through the eyes of your dad. And you could just see on his eyes just the pain and the hurt. And he's questioning himself. I mean, a million things are going through his mind. So the movie just captured that powerfully. I think any parent, anybody with kids in relationships would see, I think, the tenderness with which you shared with your parents. But I think also the commitment you said that you need to be authentic. And I think that part of the film is really valuable. I I do think one thing that came through the film that's just interesting that might highlight just one difference about how we approach faith. Earlier, Justin, you asked uh, about you you asked Bart about kind of his thoughts on my dad's advice and and Bart said in particular, you know, really the question I'm asking is what kind of works in practice? As I read your book and looked through the film, I noticed something your, that your dad said. He, he said. he said, I'm a mystic. I feel the presence of God. I sense God leading me. I cannot prove God is leading me, but I feel his presence in my life. And then on page 31 in the book, he said, the primary foundation of my faith is not what I know, but what I feel. And then I noticed in the documentary, Bart, you said something similar. You said, I'm, I'm praying, going through the motions, and at some point it started to feel real to me. I felt like this was it. The impression that I got, you could totally correct me if I'm wrong, is that that kind of your dad and yourself take a very practical, experiential approach to faith. Whereas my dad, I guess maybe having a crusade background was very different. Crusade has this famous train where the front of it is fact, in the middle says faith, and then the caboose is feeling. And one of the things my father always just hammered home was, you know, it's not about your feelings. It's not about your experience. Don't process truth by your experience. Process experience by your truth. And even my father's tagline is telling the world the truth. So the primary question that has always been in the back of my mind is, is this true? Is secular humanism true? Is the Bible true? Is Christianity true? And what does the evidence show? Now, I don't think it's about proving it beyond a shadow of a doubt. I certainly have some doubts in my life. I always have. I think it's part of just being wired the way that I am. But the primary question that has been in the back of my mind is always, is it true? And follow the truth no matter what it costs. 
So that might just be a little bit of a different way we've come to look at faith. And I'd be really curious to what you you think about that, Bart. You know, it's, it's interesting because in my own Christian journey, like very early on, as I started to read the Bible, I would find these things that like were really difficult, like the genocide in the Old Testament or, you know, Jesus saying, I, I have come to turn children against their parents and all that stuff. And I would think like, this doesn't make sense. And whenever I would go to my youth pastors and I would ask them about that, they would say, look, 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 like the Holy Spirit will make this clear to you. But the, but, but what they would say is, is that the gospel is foolishness to those who don't believe that, that in a sense, like from the inside, it makes sense. But from the outside, even Paul knew that these were some extraordinary claims, people rising from the dead, floating up into heaven, Red Seas parting, you know, you know, that this kind of stuff only made sense from within. If the, if God gave you the faith to believe it, that we're saved by grace through faith and this not of yourself, lest any man should boast, it's a gift of God, that you need faith in order to appropriate the gospel, and you can't generate that with all the evidence in the world. And so for me, you know, the, the, the notion that sort of apologetics will get you there, I mean, you know, I said this to you, Sean, I'm like, apologetics are really important to show Christians that their faith is not irrational and, and, and that they can hold it They'll hold their heads high as they go out in the world of ideas. But I said the idea that you can talk somebody into believing that God is real, it, it just it, – it's not very compelling to me because I haven't seen it work that way. Sean, go ahead. Yeah, I guess I would say I, I have a number of friends in particular I could list off who, as skeptics and nonbelievers, examine the Gospels, examine the scientific evidence, found it compelling – even before they understood what the gospel itself meant. And I'm not saying that's the norm for everybody. Um, I, I think you're right that that we do have a certain element of faith in a certain belief system, and then things make sense after we adopt it. I mean, Sean, you grew up in you grew up in San Diego Hills with Josh McDowell. Do you really think if you'd have grown up in Kabul, Afghan, Afghanistan, and your father had said to you, follow the truth, that you would have found your way into, into Christianity? Well, maybe. I mean, I'm not going to say— I mean, but, 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 like, but that doesn't—but, like, don't—isn't it, like, isn't it kind of curious to you that most of the kids that grow up in Christian households end up finding the truth in Jesus, and most of the kids that grow up in Muslim households find it in Islam, and most of the kids that find out grow up in Buddhist households? Like, I mean, everybody's telling their kid to follow the truth, but it is kind of weird, isn't it? I don't think everybody's telling their kids to follow the truth. I really don't, Bart. I mean, on every single issue— one of the things my father would hammer home with me, he'd go on politics. He'd say, son, have you read both sides and history on theology? He would ask me more questions than he would give me answers. He'd encourage me to read perspectives different than my own, whether it was religious text or books outside of it. My father was never threatened by beliefs that were different than his. So you're certainly right. There's a correlation that's there. But I have Muslim friends who change their faith. I have Christian friends like yourself who change their faith. Just because there's a correlation maybe shows Jesus is right that we're sheep, that we tend to just believe that which is presented to us. But you're a clear example of somebody who says, gosh, I was raised in this, didn't work for me, and I changed. So I think it can happen. 
And one of the values that was hammered home for me, if I went to my dad with questions about the Bible, like you mentioned, he wouldn't say, well, just have faith. He'd say, well, what do you think? Let's open it up. Does it make sense? Why would God allow this to happen? Is there an explanation for this? And we would talk about it. So that's something that was hammered home in me. And I think it's actually not a lot of people approach faith from any religion with that kind of critical thought. I, you know, you may be right. I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, as I, t- as I was telling you my story, like, I don't know that I would have questioned the sovereignty of God if I hadn't been close to so many people who were going through such terrible suffering. I, I think maybe if I hadn't gone to the inner city, if I would have stayed kind of where I grew up in the lily white suburbs of, of the main line of Philadelphia, I, I, you know, I, I might not have, I might, unless I guess, unless my mother got a terrible form of bone cancer or unless, you know, something horrible happened. I mean, my experience was that for me, what called into question the veracity of the scriptures wasn't just kind of like cold argumentation. It was lived experience, you know, that, that, that I would have these experiences that just made almost made a mockery of the idea that there was a good and loving God who was capable of healing from people from cancer, but he just chose not to in this instance. I, I mean, you know? it's, it so, sounds a lot, so, Bart, in that sense, that, that it was a, a very old fashioned, um, in a sense, objection to Christianity, the problem of evil and suffering, but experienced in a very direct way in, in what you saw going on around you that obviously was was certainly the main thing, if you like, that that, that shook your faith um, from the outset. I mean, that was a big part of it. The other part of it was like, you know, I had gay roommates when I was in college. Sure. So guys th- who had been born gay, grown up gay, and and I loved those guys. And the and, and and in the 1980s when I was in college, the clear understanding was there that was they were abominations before God. Their behavior was was prohibited, and 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 they were perverse. And it just, yeah, like all, all I, I remember it, right all, things. It was sort of going, like, I think the Bible's wrong on this. Well, let, let me bring Sean back in here because, um, Sean, you, you've obviously read this and, and seen the film. And, and so, you know, the progression that, that Bart's story took uh, in this respect. Um, what do you say? Obviously, um, Bart was doing amazingly good work, but he didn't feel like God was kind of keeping his end of the bargain in, in a sense of there, there wasn't enough um supernatural intervention in in cases where obviously bart just felt god should shouldn't be allowing these kinds of situations to flourish and obviously you've got these other issues going on as well in terms of um him finding you know that he he couldn't accept what the bible said about homosexuality the way that he read it so um where where do you go with all of all of that aspect of the reasons that um, bart ultimately lost his faith sean well, I think for all of us and, and I I think you would agree with me Bart there is a combination of experience and in terms of what we think is true. I mean, you share in, in the book about this professor, Dr. Barr, and his Old Testament class raising questions about internal contradictions and errors in the Bible and the different inconsistencies in the conversion of Paul. You raise that as an example, as well as this experience within uh, the sovereignty of God working in the inner city. So it's probably some combination of both, I would think. For me, when I worked in the inner city for that year, I was 20, gosh, probably 22, 23 out of college. And it rocked me. I remember seeing, I worked with kids in gangs, saw a lot of the same type of stuff, just homelessness, brokenness, all the kinds of sins you describe poignantly in the film and in the book. 
And I think the way I processed it differently was it, it didn't cause me to question my faith at that stage. At that stage, I already had reasons why I understood that God was sovereign, reasons why I believed that the Bible was true. And I saw God working in different ways through people. I mean, I guess maybe part of it is a story I brought to the table of my father going through sexual abuse, going through a father who's an alcoholic, and just seeing him come out of that and use it for good, even the immeasurable pain that my father went through. In fact, we asked him a few years ago, sitting around as a family, my sister goes, Dad, share a good memory you have of being a kid. And he pauses, he goes, I don't even have one. I don't even have one good memory as a kid. It was so painful. So I guess going into the inner city and seeing a lot of that pain and brokenness, I had wrestled with why I thought the Bible's true. I had wrestled with why I thought that God exists. I had seen, at least in my father's life pretty poignantly, and many other people I work with the inner city, goodness come out of suffering and pain. So it didn't honestly cause me to question my faith. And I think that's what we saw, for example, in people like Nabil Qureshi. I mean, somebody who was a Muslim, who became a Christian, had a vision of Jesus, examined the evidence, thought it was true. He writes these videos. I know a lot of your listeners are familiar with this, but he writes these videos towards the end of his life. And he describes how he believed God was going to heal him. And it gets to the end and he doesn't. And he says, I didn't stop believing because I knew something can't come from nothing. I knew the fine tune of the universe pointed towards a fine tuner. I knew the origin of life points towards a mind. The origin of consciousness points towards a consciousness, the existence of objective reality, the evidence for Jesus. So he had this belief system in place by which he could process the suffering and the pain when it was very personal for him. So I do think it's a combination of both. But if we have a worldview in place and we have reasons why we think that worldview is true, it gives us, I think, the platform and the ability to process these really difficult questions that you experienced, Bart about suffering and unanswered prayer and some of the evil that we see in the world. I think, that, you know, I think, I think you're, you're right. I guess, I guess to me, I passed, like my, I changed my theology 87 times trying to stay Christian. And, and so I found that there were like all different veins of Christianity and that kind of the, the difference between Christian groups were like one group would underline one set of verses and ignore another set. And, you know, like you could make Christianity like support women's rights or you could make it support like, you know, men always being in charge. Like you could make it support slavery. You could make it support the abolition of slavery. And what I what I, I came to like what I what I felt like I kept experiencing was is that there was this sense in which everybody was bending the scriptures and bending their theology to try to stay in the game. And I was doing the same thing. I mean, the last God I believed in before I gave it up was perfect. Like he agreed with everything I liked. He, he cared about everything I cared about, but he was a product of my own invention. And so when I saw all this shifting and moving and, 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 and different people kind of making God what they wanted him to be, it, it felt to me like in my own life and in the life of people around me, that there was this deep, desire to stay Christian 
and and we kind of worked ourselves around to find a way to do just, that. Just before I, before Sean comes back, because I, I just find this very interesting. I'm sure Sean will want to respond. I mean, what's interesting to me, to some extent, Bart, in your story, is that obviously you you didn't feel you could hold on to Christianity in the end, having had all that movement and so on. I mean, did you consciously embrace atheism? I mean, did you come to the belief that there is no God? Because that even if you don't believe the Bible is internally consistent or whatever you might say it doesn't necessarily lead to the conclusion that there's no God, that there's no ultimate yeah, you know, purpose and, to life, that there's no, that all that exists is matter in motion and we live in an ultimately naturalistic universe. But did you, did you arrive question. at that point, point of view or, or are you kind you of agnostic in that sense? You know what happened was I, I got in a bike crash and mm. I almost died. And, and I had a big head injury and I couldn't think straight for a month. And when I recovered... The strongest feeling I had, it didn't change my belief system any, but it made me aware of the fact that, that I was pretty well convinced by that point that this life was all we have. That when I died and my brain broke down, that my consciousness would break down with it. That I was, I was in my brain, in my body, and that when my body was gone, I would be gone. And, and what, what swept over me was this sense of, oh, my goodness, this life is all we have. How do we make the most of it? And that was what, you know, so like I never was kind of like a, I don't believe in God. What happened to me was is I was a sort of, I think this life is everything that we have. And it's amazing and it's a privilege. And how do I make the most of it? And I quickly came to the conclusion that the way to make the most of this life was by loving other people was by making the world better for other people, was by cultivating a sense of gratitude and wonder for just the privilege of being alive in the first place. And, and that's why like, my dad and those other people were like, you don't seem much different now than when you were following Jesus. Well, Jesus was saying that we should love other people and make the most of this life too. And so it, it, my, I think the I, thing I, yeah, that I, was I see really important to me was just that I, I came to the conviction that this life was everything we have. Sean, that was the place that Bart found himself. What do you make of this this journey he had, you know, going back to the, the fact that he obviously felt that in the end he didn't feel you could really, anyone could make what they wanted of scripture and so on. And ultimately this accident led him to this place where he, he kind of, for some reason, just felt like when my body goes, I will be gone. I've got to make the most of it. And kind of that led, I, I think, uh, you know, to, to cut the long story short, to the humanist sort of principles that, that Bart now espouses as, as a humanist chaplain just just your thoughts on that sean before we go to a break yeah i think we're similar bart in that i certainly wanted to hold on to my faith when i've had these questions and i do want to hold on to my faith if i didn't admit that i'd be disingenuous but similar when you came out to your parents you said i just have to be authentic the same is true with me i'm not a christian because i have a career in this or because people expect me to I'm a Christian because I really think it's true. So I think there can be authenticity. People say it makes sense and I believe it. And there can be authenticity in people who walk away. Now, is there a tendency to take scripture and twist it to what we want? Yeah, I can tell you, I try to fight that and ask myself, am I doing that? Or am I really looking to what the text teaches? So when I look on that, you mentioned the issue of homosexuality. Why look, if you look in Leviticus 18 or anywhere in the scriptures, it never says that gay people are an abomination. In fact, if anything, it says everyone is an abomination because of sinfulness in Romans 3 and Mark chapter 7. Now it describes behavior. Yeah, that's the, that original thin, sin thing is another thing I've got a bone to pick with. 
Sure, we could. Yeah, you write that in your book. We can come back to that. But you got to have to take these one at a time. The Bible doesn't say gay people are an abomination. They're made in the image of God with with intrinsic dignity and value and worth. And I don't see how you get worth for gay people or anybody apart from being made in the image of God. So as I look at that issue, I have friends with same-sex attraction, Christians and not, and I might differ with them over what I think is moral over with, as I do with a lot of people. But the Bible doesn't say that they're an abomination. That's exactly what the scripture teaches. They have infinite dignity and value and worth. Right. So, but, but Sean, on, on an issue like that, does it not bother you? Don't you think like if there is a God, like why couldn't he be more clear? Like there's all these people suffering. Why couldn't he say exactly what he wants on that issue? He did say exactly what Then why do you and all your Christian friends disagree on what's moral? Bart, nothing follows from disagreement. Nothing follows about the clarity of truth. I think you said it clearly. You even disagreeing with your dad, you said it wasn't Jesus that led you to believe this. You came to the conclusion homosexuality is fine and found scripture to support it. That's why I think his explanation of Romans chapter 1 totally does not take the context into consideration. I've spent hours and hours reading this. I can tell you honestly, I wrote a book on this. So 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 you think the Bible is in crystal clear and that all the Christians who disagree with you are just missing the point? So crystal clear, you're putting words in my mouth. Because I'm just saying, like, they all think the same thing about you. All my mother and her, her gay Christian community, they think you're misreading the scripture. Here's what I would do. I just had a public dialogue with Matthew Vines, one of the leading, quote, gay Christians. And we talk about the text. you got to go back to the text, look in the context, look at what is teaching, and ask yourself, what did Jesus, what did Paul, what did Moses mean by this? And there's a reason why for nearly 2,000 years, there's been a unanimous perspective on what marriage is and God's design for marriage. So I do think, I would say unequivocally, that other people— who are Christians who say that the Bible is fine with same-sex unions are mistaken. I mean, look. Like, but, but like slavery. Like, couldn't God have been clear about slavery? It would have saved us so much trouble in the Civil War if he would have just said, like, slavery is always wrong. Like, well, doesn't I, it – don't you wish God was clearer? I don't think it's quite that simple. When you look at slavery in the Old Testament – it's totally different from slavery in the Civil War. For number one, the Bible says you cannot kidnap. Don't kidnap. And that's what slavery in the U.S. was based on. So that seems pretty clear to me. Now, So, if, so if there's no kidnapping, then slavery is okay? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm simply Which, saying Why that, didn't God just say slavery under all circumstances is wrong? Because that's what you believe, isn't it, Sean? The kind of slavery that you have in the Old Testament is very different. Do you diff- believe any slavery is right? Okay, look, if you go back to the Old Testament, God has taken a broken people, a broken institution, and redeeming it for good. He takes it and humanizes it. He improves it, and he starts to add rights that didn't exist anywhere in the world, ultimately to the point of liberating people from slavery. So it's not quite that simple is the way that you put it out. And I would also say, I don't, I mean, I don't understand on what basis you're, you're pushing me to defend something being morally right. In the book, you distinctly say morality is something that changes. It's not objective. It's not real outside of us. I mean, you distinctly say that. So 
pressing me on these kind of issues kind of makes my point that there is a real right and wrong, that humans actually have value and we know it. I think on some level, values really are preferences. When we say we value something, we, what we're saying is, is I love that thing or I want that thing more or I'll pay more for that thing. And I think ultimately, nature does a great job of, of clarifying the ultimate value. Because ultimately, from the moment that living things emerged, from the moment, and, and you know, we have a great story of like what happened one second after the Big Bang. We, we, we know a lot about gravity and forces and exploding stars and, and, and the formation of planets and galaxies. But we don't know what happened in that one second beforehand. And we have a great story for what happens after you get single-celled organisms, how they evolve into more complex creatures and finally into social creatures and into creatures with consciousness and into human beings. We, we, I can't say a whole lot about where that first cell started um, yet. But I will tell you this, is that the one thing that we learn from studying nature is that Every living thing wants to live and wants to propagate itself forward. It, the DNA in us just wants to go on. And all of, all, all of life wants to live. And as a matter of fact, if a life form emerges that doesn't value life, it simply doesn't last. That, that all living things want to live. And so on some level, life is the ultimate value. And so then the question for me becomes, I'm alive and I want to live. But more than that, as a conscious creature, I want to thrive. And we've evolved as creatures in such a way that we thrive by cooperating, that we thrive by loving each other, that literally that is our human beings. That's our kind of our great adaptation is that we're not stronger. We don't have bigger teeth. We can't fly or jump higher, but we think and work together. And we care about each other in such a way that enables us to, 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 to build and fashion lives of meaning and purpose. And so on some level, if you say to me, why, why not be selfish? I would look you right in the eye and say, listen, I've got a lot of science and data that would suggest that being selfish won't cause you to thrive. That ultimately the people that live the, li live the longest and that register the highest degrees of satisfaction with their lives are those that commit themselves to loving relationships, that invest themselves in making things better for the rest of the community, that cultivate a sense of wonder and gratitude for the privilege of being here in the first place. So it's not so much that I would say to you it's evil or it's wrong. I would simply say it doesn't work. Okay. It's not the way it, it's, to live. It's kind of a, the, the biological story of how we evolved to be cooperative in, in order to get on and, in a weird way, yes, and, and, and it, it, propagate our DNA. Darwin, yeah. it, it, to quote Charles Darwin, who talks about natural selection, what I would say is, to paraphrase, I would say, love naturally selects. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, um, so, so I'm sure you're familiar with this way of understanding why we want to cooperate and get on with each other and so on. What's your problem with it, Sean, uh, ultimately? Why, why is that not a satisfactory way of getting to a, a kind of a grounding of, of why we should treat each other in the kinds of ways that, that quite naturally Bart does want to treat people around him? Twice in the book, uh, Bart goes out of his way to describe that he's a materialist, that only physical things like matter and energy exist. Um, it's interesting that when you talk about 
thriving in the universe, that it's things like love and meaning that get us to thrive. I think it's worth asking the question, why do we live in a universe in which love and meaning themselves are the vehicles by which we thrive the most? Could that be a clue to there actually being a universe? We live in a universe in which there's really love, in which there's really meaning. I think that's a question that has to be asked that to me would point towards those things being objectively true. But beyond that, at the beginning, I think one difference that I would have is you said, you said values are personal. I will pay for this or I won't pay for that. There's a difference between instrumental value, something that has value to me or has value to you, Bart, or to somebody else, and something that has intrinsic value because of the kind of thing that it is. And I find the explanation that you gave, which I think is as good of an explanation as somebody can give from the humanist standpoint. I really do. But I think it falls short because if you don't have human intrinsic value, throughout the book, you talk about things like love, which aren't physical, goodness, fairness, justice, beauty, gratitude, integrity, all of these processes as if they're real and we're supposed to follow them. In fact, on page 112, when you, after you say there's distinctly no purpose or meaning, you say what's important. No, is wait, wait, wait. No purpose uh, to the universe. There's plenty of purpose in the universe. Okay, there's no objective purpose to the universe, but we can create or invent meaning is the term you use, right? Exactly, exactly. That's okay. right. That's what we do. So to me, I don't understand what it means when you write. And let me give a couple of these and you can obviously come back. You talk about people becoming a better person. You talk about intrinsic goodness on page 94. You criticize people who have the fantasy of heaven because, quote, it distracts people from the most important reality of life on earth. And then you said on page 72, what does it mean to dedicate your life as a secular humanist, quote, to making your verse a truly good one? So I guess the tension to me is, is you talk about morality and meaning not being inherent in the universe itself talk about how we can invent them but then you speak like there's truly goodness there's truly being a better purpose there's real justice and there's mercy as if they're features of the universe itself it's almost as if i project my own values onto the universe okay which is exactly which is exactly what i that's the most human thing in the world to do then I guess that raises the question, if you're projecting your values, why can't I project mine? What if I don't care about thriving in the way you describe thriving, since that's not an objectively better way to live? You can't really say that you're a better person for doing that. You can't talk about committing your life as a secular humanist to a truly good one. You can just say, here's just a good one I decided. That I, I can, I, right. All, the best I can do is I can stand over here and say, here's a way of life that I find to be incredibly meaningful. If your way of life isn't working for you, come on over and try this one. We're all gonna love each other and we're gonna seek to do good things for other people and we're gonna, we're gonna cultivate a sense of wonder and gratitude. See how that works out for you. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else and try something else. You're right, I can't objectively say your way of life isn't working. All I can say is this way of life is really working for me and my people. And I, and I think you know where this is going. I think then the response is, if you can't say it's objectively good, you can't make any objective moral condemnations of any behavior anybody else does. You can just say, the Holocaust, I don't like it. 
hey, if that's working for you, do it, but it's not working for me. I mean, that's the price, and maybe you're willing to just bite the bullet and say that's the way it is. But to me, I guess I find that just to be a profoundly unsatisfactory. Is that what you're saying? I mean, are you saying, Bart, that Hitler, well, he just found his way of expressing himself in the world and it worked for him. I don't like it. It's not my preference. But if that's your preference, that's that's the way it goes. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. So are you saying there are objectively right and wrong things in the world then, things that you shouldn't be doing, things that, you know, people should be held to account for? It's not just about preference, because if it's more than... It sounds like you're saying on one level it's preference, but on the other hand, no, there's definite things people should and shouldn't be doing. What I'm saying is what I'm, is that whether we're talking about wolves or elephants or human beings, all social animals develop codes that, that enable them to thrive and survive. And those codes are not what's good for me or what's good for you or what I want or what you want. They're what they're what's good for the group. But are, isn't what you're describing simply the, the the way things are rather than the way things should be? So if a, I don't know, I mean, in, in guerrilla circles, um, infanticide occurs uh, sometimes. Um, that's just the way things are. But you're not saying that that's kind of the way things and, should and, be. And, and the thing is, like, I think that one of the things is, is that sometimes people are saying would, would say to me, but listen, how do we get to a perfect universe by your way? And I would say like, oh, I, I don't I think the universe I think the world can always get better. I don't think it can ever be perfect. I think it is the nature of humanity to struggle with some very real fears and some some very real terrors. I mean, we are we survive by cooperating, but we also survive by competing. Like we're 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 caught in a world of limited resources. So there's always going to be struggle. There's always going to be competition. And I, I mean, I understand the desire to believe in a good and loving God who will take us all away to a magical utopia where we'll live forever in perfect harmony and nothing bad will ever happen. It's not that I don't see the appeal of the Christian narrative. It's just that it doesn't seem very plausible to me. Sean, in, we get, we're going to have to draw it to a close here. But what I, I, I'm hearing you say on this is that you just don't feel that while that obviously Bart has rejected Christianity, he's still holding on to some fundamental things that work in Christianity, but don't work in an atheist framework as far as you're concerned. I think that's my biggest difference with this. At the beginning of your book, you talk about how when you're an atheist, I'm sorry, you're a humanist and you left, your values were still in place. And the question was, you write here, I think on page 23, the real question was how we were going to justify that lifestyle to ourselves, to our kids, to our Christian faith, and especially to other people without faith, without claiming to believe in God. And then you wrote, as soon as I faced up the fact I no longer believed in Christianity, the first thing I wanted to do was work out a new philosophical foundation for a way of life I already knew worked in practice. I think if you begin by assuming goodness and caring for people and love are part of the universe, you can find a justification to fit that. But if we begin by saying which explanation of life best matches up with human experience, our belief in fairness, our belief in justice, our talk about love, all these immaterial, supernatural kind of phenomena, I don't see how you get there without there being a God to ground it. So I think I mean, I think, and I obviously Bart could push back on this, but I think he's borrowing so much from this Christian narrative and his heritage, which does which doesn't find a home within the secular worldview itself. And the last point I'll say is, I think on you're talking about goodness, but I think there's an equivocation on goodness. You're right that evolution could explain why certain behavior is good towards our survival, 
But that's a different kind of good than moral good. Because if our morality evolved by evolution, then it doesn't mean justice is good and we should love our neighbor. Michael Ruse, the atheist philosopher, said these are just tricks played on us by the process of evolution to get us to survive and cooperate. So at best, I think evolution could give us good in the sense of helping us survive, but it doesn't give us moral goodness and justice and beauty and gratitude and integrity and authenticity, these immaterial things that I think do make sense from a theistic standpoint. We're going to have to start and to draw John, it to a close. So, oh, so, you got to so, let me, you got to let I, me I'm going to let you thing. respond. I'm going to let you respond, but we're, I'm just going to ask for you both to just keep it to just a minute or two each and, and we'll, we'll draw things to a close then. Go I on. think what Sean said is lovely. And what I, my only response would be that I think that you're right, that my humanism borrows a great deal from my Christian experience and from Christianity itself. And what I would say is, is that Christianity itself emerged out of something much deeper, which is the human experience of life itself. And so what I would say is, is that all the values that brought me into Christianity, the reason I was attracted to Christianity was because it was a great reflection of love and love is natural. And how do you want to end up? I'll give you the last word on this one, Sean. Well, love is natural to humans. Hate is natural to humans. Greed is natural to humans. Divisiveness is natural to humans. We have all different kind of instincts, C.S. Lewis famously said. Unless a standard outside of us, unless there's an intrinsic way we're supposed to live, we cannot say any of those are good and any of those are bad. And I think Christianity gives us the basis to make those kind of distinctions, which to me ultimately matches the deepest desire we have. I think ultimately Bart has a desire for kind of as good of a world as we can have. And I think we agree with that. I think that desire we have is ultimately going to be found in heaven. Thank you so much for both taking part today. It turned into a bit of a, a debate towards the end, but it was good to hear um, such a good uh, back and forth across the whole of today's program. Uh, Bart, uh, people want to find out more. Bart Campolo. Uh, film.com is the place to go. That's correct. No, no, no. It's campolofilm.com is for the movie. Bartcampola.org is for me and my podcast, Humanize Me. That's the one. Uh, so those are the places to go for more about Bart. Sean McDowell is at seanmcdowell.org. Um, Sean and Bart, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. Oh, thank you, Justin. Thanks, thank guys. You, Sean, I do love you so much, man. Too, buddy.